You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jinu Chong is the author of the novel Flux. His work has appeared in the Southern Review, The Rumpus, a Chicago Quarterly Review, The Florida Review, Craft, and The Salamander. He received an MFA from Columbia University and is an editorial assistant at One Story. Thank you for joining me, Jinu. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for having me. This is such an interesting novel in many, many ways. When we pick it up and read the first segment of the novel, you introduce three really interesting characters. And let, let's start with the one who is the most interesting off the top, it is a character who is speaking in the second person to a character from a cop show of the 80s that lasted two seasons. Uh, talk about making the decision to write in the second person. Oh, yes. That was, um, it was a product of me, you know, over the course of writing the novel, deciding that um, the the addressee of the second person, who is this fictional kind of character in the universe of the book, um, would be a much larger piece of the puzzle than I thought he would be at first. Um, the first drafts of this novel didn't have this TV show in it. And uh, it was only over, you know, trying to kind of figure out how to give this character, Brandon, a, more of a, a robust sort of personality and, and for us to get a little bit more uh, of his thought processes. Um, I invented this kind of imaginary friend that he could talk to and be his most honest self with because a problem that this character seems to have in relation to other people is that he's almost incapable of actually communicating with other human beings like he's very bad at it and to give him somebody inside him that that he he feels comfortable kind of pouring his heart out to um that's also very you know, rich for someone like a writer to work with when when laying out, you know, how to draw the, the character itself. Was it based on any specific show? Um, it's, I took, I, I tried to borrow the mood of a bunch of, you know, very kind of hallmark 80s television shows. I'm thinking of Knight Rider and, uh, like Hill Street Blues and um, Miami Vice, probably. A lot of those kinds of, a lot of the tone of those shows is present in this fictional one that I created. But the the character itself, I think is one that exists, you know, continues to exist past the 80s. And it's someone that everybody kind of keeps falling in love with. And the one that I can think of, um, most recently might be Mayor of Easttown. I was I was thinking a lot about that character that Kate Winslet plays on that show and how she's she's this very amazingly perceptive but also very solitary and um, mysterious character that you, know, you can't help but fall in love with a little bit because of because of the the mystique around it. And um, that that archetype of this like lonesome detective persists throughout all television and all fiction and um, is such an it's such an interesting kind of thing to get to work with now this novel so at the very beginning we meet a character who talks to this detective person within him to kind of work out who who he is and what he's dealing with and that immediately creates a thread in this novel of a noir and we meet two more characters and I think one thing about the mystery genre is I think when it came into existence, it cast a shadow over all of literature in that 
all of literature all of a sudden starts to seem like a mystery because when you read it at the beginning, you wonder, well, what the heck's going on here? Why am I hearing the story and what's going to happen in the end? Which is essentially what every mystery tries to evoke. And so you create this thread of the noir and, and, and then you give us two more characters, uh, a very young boy. And, and so talk about creating this young boy. And I think the thread that connects all three characters, at least in the beginning, is that they are all reflecting different parts of uh, the Korean-American experience. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, 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 it was a lot of fun to um, work with different ages, I will say. Each of these, the, the three characters are eight, 28 and 48 years old and um, I feel closest to the 28 year old because it's my life but I was once the eight-year-old and, and a lot of what I recall of my own childhood kind of seeped into his view of the world and, and how he experiences it uh, but it's very much you know I think a lot of children of immigrants growing up encounter sort of a journey with their own identity that develops over time. Uh, mine certainly has developed and changed and transformed over over the, the 27 years I've been alive. And um, to look at the way that each of those characters' identities has kind of developed or or has come to be at their at their place in time is at, at and their place within the chronology of their life is just um, it was so interesting to look at, especially because you know when, when you're a kid, you you are very innocent and and sort of disbelieving of of the world in ways that um, are so interesting to talk about, and, and you feel almost shielded by by the the comfort the comforting atmosphere of your family and your home, and that all of course gets stripped away as as you grow older, and it it's sort of forces you can to contend with certain questions about your identity that um, never thought about before, uh, especially when you are, you seem to be as many Asian American people are and a lot of children of immigrants, a lot of minority people in this country, you know, uh, caught between two different worlds. And one is where your parents came from. And then one is the world in which you find yourself now, which is very, in America, which is very white and uh, kind of cruel toward uh, people that look like you, and um, I was trying to, I was trying to say something about that journey in speaking about in in diving into those three characters and and talk a little bit about how it is seen to change as you grow older and sort of uh, older and wiser and also. Um, as you kind of shed your your misconceptions about the world, the third character is uh, as as you say, he's forty eight years old. He's approaching middle age, and he's getting a voice implant that something that mounted into his throat that will allow him to speak again. And for me, one of the things that was interesting about that is I'm reading this and thinking, is that possible? Could that <laughs> wait, wait, do they have that surgery now? <clears throat> and, and so I think that, that this suggests the other genre that is certainly this novel, weaving through this novel, which is science fiction, which is at this point in time, we're somewhat unaware of, of what, the level of technology is anywhere at a different part of the world at any time because somebody could be, you know, cooking up Frankenstein's monster in their CRISPR bot with the help of CRISPR in a university lab. We wouldn't know it. Uh, a Chinese gentleman that claimed to have uh, altered the DNA on his children, uh, you know, a few years ago, we have uh, Dolly the sheep. We don't know what the heck has gone on at any one moment in this world with regards to the level of science and what's being done to us, for us, or about us. I uh, completely agree. That's that's what's so exciting about um, 
about speculative or science fictions. Like it, it uh, there are so many. Th- Threads that exist in the real world that can be pulled on and exaggerated and sort of elongated um, to make some sort of point or, or to illustrate some sort of metaphor. I feel like a lot of um, a lot of speculative fiction or near near present future story li- stories kind of do that, where um, some sort of aspect of society or like our our obsession with you know. Kind of all like augmented reality, or or the kind of you know uh, our addiction to handheld devices, some what whatever it might be, it it gets just completely exaggerated, and you're able to in that realm of the speculative, you're able to just um, do whatever you want there, and it ends up usually, in my opinion, making making something. Very, stating something very profound about human nature. Well, I think the power of science fiction for me is the ability, and this book displays this in spades constantly through it, is the ability of the author using the elements of the fantastic to dislodge bits that are buried deep within us that we don't want to talk about, find difficult to talk about, really disturbing to talk about, you can just pull them right out and turn them into plot points. <laughs> so <laughs> they're kind of hard to miss. But also I think you pointed out something that's really, uh, I think, become more and more urgent to us now in the real day age, which is, uh, and this is something I told myself about maybe five years ago, is that Science fiction has a lot to answer for. And I I first thought this when the Pizzagate conspiracy <laughs> came to life. I thought, well, when I first heard about it, you know, what they were claiming, I'm thinking, boy, this sounds like, like a really bad science fiction story. Of course, long ago, Kim Stanley Robinson said, Rick, we're living in a bad science fiction novel. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the case, and nonetheless, um, I I think that science fiction storytelling has infected the narrative of of reality to the point where it's hard to tell between the two. Not only sometimes science fiction will deliberately say I'm science fiction, but it seems very I seem very realistic because I'm taking my inspiration from things that are really happening. On the other hand, sometimes reality says, I am reality, but when it's really taking its inspiration from science fiction, and it's not reality at all. And this brings us to another very specific and recent occurrence which you address in this novel, which is Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, She essentially told the entire world that a science fiction story, that she invented something which sounded kind of reasonable and she got millions and of dollars to do it but eventually it was her story proved to be in fact what we have to call science fiction and you use that very well in this book that was a lot of fun to work with it, it was the seeds that this novel came out of this um with, with it was the the, I think it was the first book that was written about Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, and it was called Bad Blood, um, because it was written by the journalist who had really, you know, made the first steps in exposing her. His name was John Carreyrou, and he was, I think, an investigative reporter for the Wall Street Journal at the time. And um, I fell in love with that idea. The 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 um, just the it's kind of the kind of blind confidence that she had in in herself and you know i think it really speaks to the the poison effect as you say that that it can have that a lie can have on a person just the way that i really i genuinely believe that she thought what she was selling was was real i actually think that she actually believed in in the the technology um and just over years of this like delusion convinced herself that it would work no matter how many red flags came up or how many sort of roadblocks uh, she, she believed her own science fiction novel 
She absolutely did. And um, I think that's what separates the, the really spectacular scammers in our history from, from everybody else's. Like, they, you know, to reach that height, you, you do have to actually believe it. And um, it was an amazing story to, to think about. I wanted to tell a story like it made reading it made me want to tell a story just like it and, and kind of get down to the, the details of why of 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 um the ease of manipulation that she seemed to have around everybody that encountered her. Uh, I was so curious about that and how it could work. And that brings out another thread of type of novel this is, which is very dark and very funny satire mm -hmm. uh, of current corporate kind of blindness and insanity. I mean, it's like the, these guys are playing like a kindergarten kids wearing masks for, for Halloween or something, but they're playing with millions, billions of dollars. And, and you create Iowa Emsworth, who has come up with a brilliant new technology. I'd say she's part Elizabeth Holmes, but also there's a big strand of Elon Elon Musk in her as well. <laughs> so exactly. was Elon on your mind when you were writing this book? Oh, totally. Because, you know, he seems to be the most vivid example of how transparently bogus that kind of personality is like every uh, he has he has zero credibility left you know it's like the everybody sees straight uh, he, he'll say a single thing and everybody sees exactly straight through and being like well that's bullshit you know it's it's you know I, I don't know if I can say BS on the show but a lot of it's so easy to see and um, that comes through in a lot of IO's dialogue and the way that she talks it's this like very detached kind of sort of it's seemingly self-aware but it, it is also at the same time very oblivious but very kind of you know very conspicuously oblivious where you you know it's you know how lost she is uh and you're able any normal person can look at her and be like well you, you have absolutely no idea what you're doing um that was that was what made her so funny to write and and what made that dialogue so kind of uh enlightening to 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 try and figure out how how a person like that would communicate probably how i i, I know that's how elon musk kind of talks in his sort of closed circles on on the twitter board or on the tesla board like i know that's how he actually sounds in closed rooms and i, I wonder how many people actually listen to that and, and take any stock in what he says because it's it is again just total bs uh, people who are magnificently self possessed and self obsessed at the same <laughs> time yeah. you know there this novel also has uh, another great character and who i want to just mention just while we're talking about the characters who is lev He's Brandon's new boss. Brandon has to get a new job, and he ends up working for I.O. at, at a company called Flux. And Lev is this guy who, who understands how bogus everything is, but is riding this enormous wave of money. He is a... a, a a billionaire surfer not that he's a billionaire he's just surfing on the billions of ambient dollars that are swirling around these new projects i think that's completely true the you know it is all about money in that world and that's why like that's why it built on itself when i think of theranos um they inked a deal like a billion dollar deal with walgreens to sell their their examination, their their blood, their blood monitor in the stores. At the time, um, no prototype was built. They had literally nothing. And Walgreens said, "We'll have you know, we'll give you all of this money." After that news broke out, you know, they had more deals. They had more people joining their board. Everybody was chasing this kind of 
facade of legitimacy that had zero merit to it, but there was money involved. And so it was real to them. And that, that didn't matter at all. Like that it can be so, ins- I, I, I felt kind of disgusted a little bit by, by the insidiousness of, of just uh, the desire for wealth that exists in that Silicon Valley tech space that everybody's after the same thing. And, and once, once a spark is lit, something that nobody had heard of before can just become the biggest thing in the world because everybody is, everybody's converging on it. Like, like, uh, like vultures a little bit, or not like vultures, like, like, you know, when you, when you drop breadcrumbs on the city walk and all the pigeons come in, like, it's exactly that. You know, um, there's a technique that you use really well in this book, in science fiction, uh, that I, I, I would term and I've heard called hand-waving, which is where you uh, say on a technology, and Star Trek is a great example of this, it's a warp drive. It makes two points in space that are really far away, just close for an instant, so you can just jump all that that, that way. And it's a good enough explanation so that if you're immersed in the air, if you're looking at the spaceship, you're not thinking about it. You know, how does this really happen? No, it doesn't make no sense whatsoever. It makes a little bit of sense, but, you know, you don't really care. You just want to go with the flow of the narrative. And what has happened and what you just described Theranos doing and Elon Musk doing is they are using the hand-waving literary trope of science fiction in the real world saying oh i've got this thing it does something to the blood it makes sense doesn't it yeah i mean sure and and the fact of the matter is is that scientists are always trying to build to the things that are described in science fiction i've interviewed a couple of scientists david grinspoon and a few others who said sure i watch star trek i you know everybody of course, we're all still waiting for them to make those squeaky sliding doors. <laughs> but so there's that kind of feedback loop between scientists wanting to make something and somebody who make wants just wants to make money kind of waving their hands saying, see, here's the science. Oh, don't ask too many questions. You wouldn't understand that. That's so true. Yeah. And, you know, it, it happens not just with, like, tech. It happens with... Feel like finance. I, I I feel like everybody you know who pretended to be so knowledgeable about the the 2008 housing crisis. It was like that kind of like this explaining away of of what it was leading up to it, and then the crash, and then more explaining away of like why it happened. It's you know I feel like it's everybody's. It's a very human compulsion to try and you know make sense of things. And everything, everything, and um, so often it's impossible to. But it doesn't stop people from trying or pretending, or pretending. <laughs> yes, and and like and and knowing that they they don't have the answer, but saying it anyway just to to, to appear intelligent. You know, when I was growing up, there were was a series of books. I remember seeing them. I used to read like books like Willie Lay's On Earth and in the Sky and Charles Ford's Book of the Damned and, you know, Flying Saucers Are Real. I read all those when I was a kid. But I also read some science fiction. And I remember seeing these science fiction books. I was always kind of scared to read them because I didn't know if they were really real or really science fiction. I thought, this is just too creepy for me, which was the Robert Anton uh, Wilson Illuminatus trilogy. And eventually they expanded into 10 million books but i'm wondering if those had any if you saw those or if they had any influence on your writing Hmm. i you know i um i admit i feel somewhat nervous talking and sort of entering this science fiction space um because i don't have that much experience with it. Like I certainly didn't grow up reading um, much. Like I've, I've read a little bit of Asimov and a little bit of like Philip K. Dick and things like that, but nowhere near the level that um, uh, that encompasses that that whole sort of world. 
I, um, I started to see, you know, the tech, the tech elements of this book and the science elements of it is just a vehicle for um, the characters to kind of express themselves or to, to be able to, to be able to reveal a little bit more about them in kind of an uncon in, in, an, in an unconventional way to someone who might be used to a lot of very domestic sort of literary fiction. Um, what made it interesting was that introducing like this kind of science tech aspect in the book let me bend the world a little with a little bit more force than I probably would have if this were a very you know realistic grounded story. And let me just say, interrupt you for a second, say it works brilliantly. I mean, there, as I say, there are parts of this book where you're using the tech to, to, to dive into the characters and alternate, you can just alternate it between something that's very funny to something that's just really, really heartrending as the, as the characters, the, the, as the tech affects the characters and we get to know them more, there are some scenes in there that just, you know, are really heartbreaking that I think would have been in a way that would be impossible to replicate in standard literary fiction. You just couldn't do it. It would seem kind of corny or something, but you do it, use this for an effect that's just really quite a heartrending, you know, juxtaposing different scenes and, you know, also, too... Uh, let's dig into this a little bit. To you, use the science fiction uh, genre and the tropes and, and your technology, which we will let, let the readers discover, um, to dive to create the feel of the character's world because we don't respond to our world in a realistic way. We experience you know, all sorts of things kind of out of sequence, you know, when you might be sitting there thinking uh, that, you know, about your job or something, and then, wow, um, my dad lost his job 30 years ago, and I remember when he came home and told the family, and and so you do use your science to explore the characters in a really deep and interesting way. Did you decide on the, the science fiction element before you started writing, or did it just come up when you were writing? It, pro it, it came up when I was writing, I would probably say. And it felt like the fix that I introduced, because I was telling this, I was telling what, what originally appeared to me as a very sort of straightforward scam story that would deal with this sort of fake company and would satirize popular culture and things like that. Um, but I think because I made Flux, the company, uh, like a tech, you know, the Silicon Valley, this like very sleek and, and, and um, futuristic kind of tech company, it, it lended itself really easily. And then, um, as you say, it, it allowed me to, to dive so deep into the characters themselves and, and to do things that wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't introduced something wild and, and fantastical like that. Um, I really appreciate, you know, when people say that the, the, the science fiction element of this book is, is a ladder to uh, understanding what makes the characters themselves, because the you know, each of the each of the three main characters are dealing with a loss of some kind, and it's the, a lot of the book is concerned with figuring out why and how they have kind of developed in relation in relation to this loss in their past. Um, that's the heart of the book, rather than uh, the technology itself. Funny that you talk about the past because um, when I started reading this book, I, a series of quotes came to me just out of what's left of my tiny brain. And the first is from William Faulkner from his novel Requiem for a Nun, a very famous quote, The past is never dead. It's not even past. 
then we skip ahead to 1953 when L.P. Hartley began his novel, The Go-Between, with The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. (laughs) Then in true science fiction mode, we skip ahead 50 years to 2003 when William Gibson, the author of Neuromancer, told The Economist, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. (laughs) Wow. So uh, I think your novel really covers (laughs) all those bases. Uh, where because this unevenly distributed uh, future that your characters find themselves in uh, lets them look at their past. I think you do a really great job of using this kind of unmooring of from time um, because the past is in the present and the future is in the present and the past. <laughs> you know, it's all mixed together for you and the characters to talk about using that to dive into the this very specific world of the Korean immigrant experience, which I think you do a really beautiful job of because it, it you, you don't wear have to wear your sausage, sausage on your sleeve, so to speak. It, it comes up kind of na- naturally in the uh, discourse of the book, and I think it's brilliantly done. I Thank you. I, um, I love... The, the the way that the book deals with time and then and the certain you know zones of time past present and future I it's one of my favorite things about it is because it, it's so messy and chaotic and I think speaks to the fact that um, as as you say with those three uh, quotes from all throughout history it, you know we are we kind of choose when to live, like where we exist. And sometimes we don't choose and, and it just something not of our time kind of comes back to hit us in a, in a certain way. And um, that's a big part of the book is, is people struggling to exist in the time that they, that they currently actually exist in because the past and the future keep seeping in in, in various and in sometimes painful, sometimes joyous ways. Um, I wanted to complicate that in the book because I often feel very distracted by memories and also uh, fears and anticipations of what's to come. I feel constantly torn between them in, in so much that I sometimes, I sometimes forget, you know, what is happening right now or what's important right now. And this has become even more true as, as I've gone through the process of publishing this book Uh, before it was, it was a lot of thinking about how difficult it was to get it published and, and to write it and to, to go through all these revisions and things like that. And then as soon as that was over, I was thinking about, well, what if everyone hates it or it gets a terrible review and nobody likes it or it doesn't sell or something like that. And, you know, this is something that especially Brandon, the middle character, um, has a problem with all the time. And people berate him for it, for for just refusing to live in the present. Um, but I feel it's it's very natural of people to to feel torn between um, who they were or who they might be and, and who they actually are. You know, one of my memories as a kid was <clears throat> back in Covina, this is in, would be in the early 1970s. Um, I was in grade school, just about to graduate and go to junior high. And we had these matinee movies where you could go to you where you pay practically nothing, and then you could see a series of movies in a matinee at the Eastland Theater. And I remember really distinctly uh, sitting in a theater and just being enthralled by the George Powell production of The Time Machine. The the guy sitting there on the in that chair with the with the wheels spinning behind him, and I think that you know. Uh, colored not only my you know experience of the science fiction and how it would treat time travel but also to a certain extent 
just in the, the way we experience time because we experience time in a we experience you know space we can move around and all sorts but we have a lot of uh, uh, you know ability to to move around in space and choose um, how we move we have no ability to affect our movement in time we're all stuck on the same escalator the same people mover it's moving us slowly through time or quickly through time but nonetheless we might just find you know drugs alcohol <laughs> just working too long and emotions might just overtake our experience of the present and you know our hopes or joys and impose the past upon our us or impose the future on us and i think that this novel does a really great job of speaking to that element of time travel that we all experience i i completely agree i was thinking a lot about the time machine especially the wells novel um and that's the epigraph of the of this book is the moment in which um the traveler kind of feels this almost automatic compulsion to turn the machine on. He, it's, it's the moment in the book where um, it, it's, he, he kind of realizes for the first time that it is actually going to work and he pulls on the lever and it's this, it feels, he feels like almost magnetically drawn to it. Like he can't help himself that, uh, that fascinated me. And it, Feel it, that's a moment that reoccurs in in this book all the time as Brandon uh, kind of experiences moments like that. I won't spoil, of course, what happens, but the, that moment reoccurs a lot, and then it was something that was really it was hugely um, inspirational to me while I was writing it. But I, I I do think that we all we all time travel in our lives and in our personal lives. Um, and the internally, inter, like it, uh, it's not evident to anybody else that we are traveling in that way, but I think everybody does it. Uh, which was an interesting question to kind of think about, which is, you know, if we were really able to do it in the way that Brandon and other characters are able to do it in the book, you know, would we do anything about it or would we try to change things? And um, I don't know that a lot of people would if they were actually given the chance. You know, two, one of the things about time travel in the science fiction genre is that by and large, it's something that when the technology is used in the novel, it's done on purpose. Everybody knows that the science fiction, you know, the the narrator in the time machine is moving forward, and and but this isn't always the what your book points out is that it might be possible <laughs> to uh, be subjected to time travel without really knowing it. I, I and I'm thinking too of the other famous uh, time travel novel, Slaughterhouse Five by by Kurt Vonnegut which this shares a lot of DNA with in terms of the dark, dark satire and also <laughs> the unstuck in time. But, I mean, it's been quite a while, but I, I know that there have been times when I've awakened in some place and gone, how the hell did I get here? Where am I? <laughs> oh, yes. It's tough to, you know, as I get older, I, I, I have moments like that in which, you know, I used to have such vivid clarity about what has already happened or, you know, I, I used to be able to remember so, you know, clearly last Tuesday, last month, things like that. But I think the routine of adult life sometimes makes things blend together in a way that is very disorienting. Um, especially around the time that I hadn't yet written this book, 
but I was still working basically a day job and I wasn't, I wasn't really sure what to do with it. That sequence occurs in this book um, and in a very cyclical kind of disorienting and foreboding way, uh, which is, in my opinion, not unlike real life can be sometimes. You know, and and again, that gets to the the joys of the science fiction genre, which is it enables the writer to heighten reality using the elements of the fantastic, as you do, to better reflect reality. Because sometimes, you know, a reality is great at many things. At forming coherent narratives, reality is a total failure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, stuff just happens, and there is no beginning, middle, and end for for most of us. And by the time we get to the end, it's too late. So, I'd like you to talk about, you know, changing this novel. It changes uh, the literary DNA. Uses uh, essentially a science fiction uh, trope you know, the trope of changing DNA, right, to create a monster, you you use that trope to change the story itself. So you subject narrative and story to a, sci a process that's often described in science fiction to create science fiction, which I think is, you know, it's a by-your-bootstraps kind of a effect in here. Absolutely. It... Uh, it came out of having, I think, too many strings. This novel was so complicated to to work out, um, and it resulted in this very crazy 50-page outline that didn't really make sense to anybody except for me, and sometimes it didn't even make sense to me, and um, mirrored a lot of the cutting and pasting of, of moments that kind of reoccurred on top of each other or played out in a slightly different way, along with things that ran parallel to it in, in uh, a separate sort of universe, but was also, when you when you read them together, it, it revealed different things about it. It was a lot of, uh, it came together very chaotically and very Frankenstein-esque, as you say. Uh, I guess when I'm talking about the Williams who uh, loom over this novel, uh, Falk, Darren Gibson, we might as well include William Burroughs <laughs> as well for the cut and paste. Exactly. The, yeah, the, I don't know how they do it. This was a lot of, it was very, it was stressful to do because, you know, I, I labored a lot under the, under the, um, the hope that as these kind of, different swirling narratives would continue on. There would be points in which people could see through and, and make sense of things. And uh, some, of, some, some of those moments are built in, but I think um, at great cost, you know, it was, a lot of, it was a lot of work to try and wrangle them all together. Well, I, I, seizing another science fiction narrative, you do create these kind of warp drive moments that are, are emotionally very affecting, where as we read about um, Raider, and we realize like there's there's a character in here who who's named Le Leather Jacket, and, and you know you might want well who the hell is this? I, is this what I think it is? But then there's an emotional moment when we realize that, and it's essentially like the Star Trek warp drive. You know, you put these two points, you've been playing with these two points far apart, and you finally bring them together, and we make that leap, that short leap, and it enables us to understand that we've traveled a great way, taking in a great bit, but finally now we realize that. And that's the pleasure of the reading experience, the mystery, and also using the uh, science fictional, I guess, uh, warp drive technique of writing, which in this book, I, you've done a great job. Maybe you'll just call yourself the pioneer of warp drive writing. <laughs> that sounds great. I'm my publicist at this point. <laughs> yeah, now, I have to ask, 
this strikes me as a book that might have been uh, at some point in, it, in its life either a spreadsheet, uh, many stickies on the wall, a giant whiteboard like in in one of the cop shows. I think that's what, what I'm thinking about. Yeah, the, you know, in the Raider cop show and in every cop show for the past 50 years, they've had, you know, the giant bulletin board. Now it's a whiteboard and pretty soon it'll be just a, in fact, a, the most recent incarnation of Hawaii Five O had it as a like a giant LED desk kind of where people would draw on. So, so talk about that. What was it? A whiteboard or a spreadsheet? It was. It was not a. It was not anything visual. Mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reason, I I can't seem to to do it to to think very well when I when I have certain like you know. That thing that all that supposedly all writers do is like the postcards on the floor and things like that. Um, this the outline was just one document and it was pages and pages of of paragraphs. Uh, it it had its own table of contents. Um, it was <laughs> it had tags of dialogue that I thought were interesting. Uh, it's it had sort of character descriptions and it had it also had these kind of very frantic notes that I'd written to myself about like, please don't forget this thing when you're bringing up this thing or, or making sure that uh, we make note of something here so that it reoccurs somewhere else. And, and um, that was, yeah, that was the way it sort of played out. You know, too, and I'm going to cut back to this now. All of this is all of this, you know, literary and uh, genre. You, you see, you know, you weave together noir. There's definitely a, a heavy noir strand in this, and you only figure that out that it's really noir, not just because of uh, jacket guy, but also just because it's built into the plot pretty far into the book, and that it, that's part. It's science fiction. And yet it's all at the service of, I think, creating for the reader the complex and strange terrain to someone like, like me, at least uh, of, you know, the immigrant experience. And I think that this, that using all of these tools, two genres and some, you know, the Emburrows cut up writing um, to, uh, it does a good job at creating this you know, giving us more, I guess, the emotional insight into the immigrant experience. I'd like you to uh, just talk a little bit about, you know, using all these tools to create something. There are tools that, when used on their own, you know, mysteries can be very simplistic, science fiction can be simplistic, and even literary fiction can be pretty simplistic in terms of, you know, the kitchen window epip epiphany novel. Um, but you cut them all up and you seem to need to cut them all up to talk about the immigrant experience I, I, at a, an emotional and an you know, intellectual level. So talk about that and how you dis discovered that. Was that up in the writing? I always knew that, uh, well, this book is the, I, the first thing I've really written with an Asian character in it. And it comes out of me, you know, as a young kid, reading only white stories um, or stories written by white people. It was the, it was the glut of, of kids' literature and also the glut of adult literature today. It's, it's this very white, Eurocentric kind of story that gets told. It's very also very heterosexual, it's very cisgender, all, all of those things. And um, uh, writing about some someone that looked a lot more like me and had a life more similar to me than, than anybody I'd read before um, allowed me to unlock a lot of, I think, genuineness to the characters and to the story that uh, all of it felt so much more real to me when I was writing it that that working out these, you know, problems or, or these conflicts and, and making it as complex as it turned out to be was was easier because, you know, I was dealing with an experience that um, 
was very close to me in life. The the noir elements, I I love noir simply because uh, it it it's a genre that's built on this pure vibe of very kind of shadowy, very sensual, but also kind of uh, it's all about lies and secrets and and the reveal of truth and and these sort of Easter egg hunts that the characters go on because nobody talks in a straightforward way. It's all it's all done in this very very like slinky kind of uh, hint speak going on throughout. And um, I guess I was thinking a little bit about the way that uh, Asian Americans, also you know, I guess just people of color in this country, have to have to kind of be operatives in their own way to navigate a society that uh, is in a lot of ways built against that, built to find them out, built to marginalize them. And um, it's a lot of stuff that has to be done in the shadows. I, I feel that way, especially um, as an Asian American person. I, I also kind of thinking about spy literature and spy narratives and how they seem to it's it, espionage literature and noir kind of overlap in so many different ways especially on the character level and um there are so few asian americans or asian stories being told in that space and it felt like very new ground to combine all of those together in ways that were unexpected um but also i think allowed me to to emphasize what's so amazing about each facet. Are you working on a new novel? I am. Um, it is quite different. I don't know that I want to do anything with it yet, but um, it, can't, it comes out of having written Flux during the pandemic and feeling like the sadness of the world was kind of seeping into me and then into this book through me. And um, it bummed me out a lot of the time. I was quite sad when I was working on this book. And I think I'm looking to do something happier and a little more joyous than this one. The new novel by Shinu Chong is Flux. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.